This is Philippe Albuquerque. I'm the editor of the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery, and it is a great pleasure for me today to welcome Dr. Raul Noguera, who is a professor of neurosurgery, neurology, and radiology at the Emory University School of Medicine and the director of the neurovascular service at Grady Memorial Hospital. We are honored today to be discussing his recent article uh, from his group that is entitled, Too Good to Intervene, Thrombectomy for Large Vessel Occlusion Strokes with Minimal Symptoms, an Intention to Treat Analysis. This article has been published online on the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery website and will be published in the print journal of the JNIS in October. So welcome, Raul, and thank you very much for doing this podcast today. Uh, thank you, Philippe, for the opportunity to share our, our data with uh, the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here in, on behalf of uh, all my colleagues at Emory and spe specifically Diogo Hausen, who, who helped me with this analysis. So, Raul, uh, this interesting article really deals with a subject that uh, has gained increasing importance in our field. We, as you know, are really looking at patients that are on the margins of being treated for acute stroke, those that are quite sick and those that actually look very well on presentation and as you know, we are still trying to delineate which patients uh, on those margins are best treated with mechanical thrombolysis. So in that vein, can you discuss briefly what led your group to conduct this study? I, I think that's actually the key question now, right? Is, is how, how can you expand the pool of patients that can benefit from thrombectomy? So uh, I think there were uh, three main barriers, right? You had the time window barrier that hopefully has been expanded uh, with the dawn and diffuse three trial results. But now you are left with the, the large stroke burden, uh, either large core volume or low aspects barrier. And we have the large vessel occlusion patients uh, who present with mild stroke symptoms. I think it's very important to, to initially just take a step back and, and understand how common this problem really is. Approximately two-thirds of our strokes present with a low NIH stroke scale. By that, I mean baseline NIH stroke scale between zero and five. It was a paper from the Cincinnati group showing that. And what is more remarkable is that uh, about 10 to 20% of these patients, the ones that present with low NIH stroke scale, will have a large vessel occlusion. And then when you look at this population, right, if you present with a low NIH stroke scale and you have a large vessel occlusion, you have a, a, an approximately tenfold uh, higher chances of uh, uh, neurological deterioration. So even though these patients present themselves like as mild patients, they, they don't necessarily do well, and that has been highlighted by, by two patients from the Gap with the Guidelines database, which uh, clearly demonstrated that despite intravenous TPA, as many as 20 to 30% of these patients are not independent at time of discharge. Actually, they are not uh, even ambulatory at the time of discharge. So I think this is a common problem, 
And it's a problem that it's not as benign as many of us used to think. Yeah, I, I understand that completely. Um, looking at your data specifically for this uh, particular case, uh, this particular paper, you mentioned that 32 patients met the criteria for your study, and of these, 22 were treated with medical therapy and 10 with mechanical thrombolysis. You allude in your study that uh, it appears that you left this decision to the families in terms of how aggressive they wanted to proceed with treatment. Is that still your practice, uh, or have you refined your selection criteria a bit? That's another good question. So it's important to understand uh, the context of this initial study. Uh, we, we start, so you have been treating patients with mild strokes and large vessel occlusions for, for many, many years now, but uh, we start prospectively collecting these patients uh, late uh, 2014. So at, at that time, uh, we, the, the data on thrombectomy from the Mr. Clean trial was coming up and then all the other five subsequent trials. So uh, we, because there was this rigid uh, uh, clinical severity window, we have always left the decision open. What you typically say is, listen, nobody really knows what happens in the scenario. Some people do well, you can watch you in the intensive care unit. Other people you deteriorate, if you deteriorate, you can always treat you but we aren't sure that if you treat you in a delayed manner, you will go back to where you were. In the same way, you are unsure if you treat you up front, you're not going to have a complication. But what you know about this procedure now is that the safety profile is, is very good. So the chances of any major complication, it's really in, in, in the range of uh, uh, 3 to 5%, and it should be probably less in the patients that present with low NIH stroke scale. So that's the initial conversation you have with the family. We have the stroke team uh, helping us with these decisions, uh, obviously. And, and there are like four parameters that you have historically used to help with, with the decision making. But at the end, it's really on the family. And the things that would make us more worry about uh, subsequent deterioration are patients that have fluctuating uh, NIH stroke scale, like meaning they, it was higher at an outside hospital. Let's say it's a patient that had a 14 NIH stroke scale with an M1 occlusion at outside the hospital, comes to us that M1 occlusion is still there, but now the NIH stroke scale is four. So because it was high before, you think those are patients with unstable collaterals. The other category that you are uh, worried about is the patients that are auto-hypertensive. So let's say you have an NIH stroke scale of uh, 3 or 4 now, but uh, your blood pressure is in the 200s, right? You don't know how long you're going to be able to su sustain that blood pressure and what's going to happen once it goes down. So we tend to be a little more worried about that patient population. One maneuver that you have found very helpful is, uh, the, is the heads up test. So typically these patients are uh, initially examined when they are lying down. So you tend to sit them up for at least a good five uh, to 15 minutes and then reassess the neurological exam. And many patients actually will have a, a deterioration when they are sitting up. And those are patients that uh, we also tend to be more aggressive with. 
And the final parameter is uh, sometimes uh, when you get CT perfusion in these patients, I think if there is a large perfusion deficit uh, with uh, uh, not so good uh, collateral profile, those are things that uh, also may, may push us one way or the other. But at the end, uh, we really try to explain the, the data to the family and, and let them decide. More recently, given the, the analysis of our experience, you have become more and more aggressive with the patient population where we tend to, to tell the family that we think there is a benefit, even though we aren't sure because there is no randomized data evidence. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and that's a practice that we also employ at our institution. Uh, Ro, you, you mentioned the orthostatic challenge. In this particular paper, you perform that in 11 patients. And then of those patients who failed that challenge, uh, you perform mechanical thrombolysis in one of three of those patients. So now, if I'm understanding you correctly, if patients at your institution fail that orthostatic challenge, are you proceeding then with mechanical thrombolysis in those patients? Uh, yes, at this point in time, uh, that, that's one of the, the clear indications where, again, we'd say, listen, um, I, I think uh, he, he's, your loved one is really at the, the edge of a deterioration here. And it's most of the time, you know, the family will be there and they will see what happens when you do the orthostatic challenge. And, and I think that really helps them feeling more comfortable uh, with that decision. You, you define deterioration as a worsening of the NIH stroke score by at least two points and that this occurred in nine of 22 patients. How are you monitoring these patients? So you get one of these patients that actually looks, looks good, their, their perfusion imaging uh, looks reasonable, and you decide that you're gonna follow them. So where are these patients going? How often are you observing them? What, what kind of neurological assessment are you performing and, and how frequently? So initially, Philippe, we, um, the, this decision again was uh, very much shared with the stroke team and the family. And given the lack of data, we, we were like, uh, you know, what you do if you uh, preferred us to do? As I said more recently, given, given the results of our analysis and other papers, we, we are pushing a little more for treatment. Uh, however, some families, uh, you know, uh, they, they decide to be conservative. Well, let's take the risk. You can always treat the patient later. So we, we watch all these patients in the intensive care unit with frequent neurochecks, at least hourly neurochecks. Um, and uh, even, even if the patient didn't get IVTPA, like right, theoretically no IVTPA, uh, you could take this patient to like a step down or, or a ward even. Uh, we, we don't do that because we, we understand that they are, uh, you know, on average very unstable patients and things can change very quickly. So for the first, uh, I would say 12 to 24 hours, they, they are in the, typically at least one night in the ICU with uh, very frequent neurochecks. And then once they... Once they do okay for that first one or two days, then we start to uh, send them to the uh, intermediate care unit, still with frequent neurochecks. And 
I think uh, once that first 48, 72 hours uh, passes by, if you haven't had a deterioration, chances are you're going to do okay. That, that has been our anecdotal experience. Yeah. So as well, you mentioned that uh, four of the patients deteriorated within three hours and that three had good outcome in comparison to only one of five that deteriorated after three hours. You discussed briefly the uh, leptomeningeal collateral failure. What would you say, uh, Raul, is, is the best way to assess the leptomeningeal collateral? What, what kind of imaging modalities are you guys using? And, and really, is this a, an objective means of assessing these patients when they present? Philippe, I think the main problem that you have with uh, measurements of uh, leptomeningeal collateral is it's, uh, we are essentially having a snapshot approach to a problem that it's uh, very dynamic. So whether you assess it with a conventional geography, with CT and geography, single multi-phase or CT perfusion, Tmax maps, uh, there are several ways of assessing. But uh, the, the problem is that that's only a snapshot in time and uh, the, uh, the collateral status will, will change over time. And that's likely the reason why these patients fail. I don't really think it's uh, it, this is related to, to progression of clot burden. Um, the vast majority of cases, I think, is just uh, collateral failure. And uh, I think that's one of the areas that I think you could do better. Uh, I think uh, the, the evaluate, continuous evaluation of uh, collateral status is something that uh, could potentially help us uh, with these patients. However, I really think that the next step should be a randomized clinical trial focusing on this patient population. Because if you can show uh, that there is an overall benefit, I think I'll just other questions on how to monitor these patients and so on and so forth, or you, you lose uh, uh, the degree of importance. So, uh, Raul, your group obviously uh, is continuing to study this problem. You've, since this article, have published uh, a secondary article uh, looking at this, uh, this problem in greater detail. Can you discuss a bit the results of that, uh, of that study as well? Um, so just to put uh, uh, trace a parallel, so the first article, uh, it, it's a prospective series, meaning like all those patients were patients that we were prospectively evaluating and assigning them to either group depending on the initial treatment decision, which I think short of a randomized trial is, is the best way of uh, uh, making this analysis, uh, having said that, uh, it takes a lot of time. As I had mentioned before, we had treated many other patients uh, before, so you had the retrospective data on our database uh, about those patients. And uh, what we did is we, we look at our retrospective, uh, we did this retrospective review of our prospective collected database to identify all patients that had thrombectomy with an IH stroke scale uh, of 0 to 5 and had had a modified rank scale uh, at baseline 0 to 2. So you had a total of 30 patients, right, with mild presentation, large vessel occlusion that underwent thrombectomy. 
then uh, we com we compare that with the uh, stop stroke database, which was a, a database uh, out of uh, Mass General Hospital and uh, UCSF, where outpatients within the first 24 hours of a stroke underwent CTA. So uh, out of those, we identified 88 patients, okay, that were treated medically and then had an IH stroke scale zero to five with good baseline modifying rank scale and a large vessel occlusion. So we could compare these two cohorts uh, of the 88 versus 30 patients. And then we saw very similar results uh, in terms of uh, higher chance of having a favorable shift in the NIH stroke scale, as well as independence at discharge. Uh, given the fact that the two cohorts were different, there were imbalances. Uh, on multivariate analysis, we still would be able, to, we were able to show a benefit. But uh, in order to to better account for these differences, we perform a match analysis for age baseline and age stroke scale and the use of IVTPA. And then you had 26 pairs for comparison. And in this match analysis, we're again able to show that uh, we had lower NIH stroke scale at discharge, favorable NIH stroke scale shift, and a higher chance of independence at discharge and long-term follow-up with thrombectomy. So the, the second paper, it essentially reintegrates the findings of the first paper in a larger cohort, although the first one is all prospective, the second one has prospective collected and retrospective collected data. Yeah, in that vein then, uh, since you've looked at this study, uh, it looked at this problem in detail now twice, do you feel that, that there really is a need for a randomized control trial? Or do you think that, that we've solved this problem, that these patients that look good uh, with large vessel occlusions and uh, low NIH stroke scores should just go to mechanical thrombolysis, or what, what more do we need to look at in a randomized control trial, and do we need another randomized control trial to look at these patients? What I would say about that is uh, perhaps people like you and me uh, don't feel there is a need because we, we believe in this, but uh, that's no different than the times of Swift Prime and uh, Dawn Diffuse 3, uh, you always will have the believers, uh, but then you have the skeptical people that will not change their, uh, their treatment paradigms uh, without level 1A evidence. And uh, if you really want to change the care of these patients in, in a more global manner, I, I think we have to do a randomized clinical trial. Uh, do I feel these patients benefit? Yes. Do I think you have good data? Yes. Do I think we have unquestionable data? No. The other thing is uh, even changes in practices at primary stroke centers. For instance, many patients with NIH stroke scale 0 to 5 don't even get an emergent CTA, right? Because say, oh, this is not a large vessel occlusion. NIH stroke scale is low. So they are not even being screened right now. And then when you actually look at large population of data, where that data is available, you then see that, uh, you know, it's, it's very common. As many as one in 10 patients fit this category. So I think uh, in order to, to have dramatic changes, we, we would need a randomized clinical trial. 
even though people like you and me don't necessarily feel it would be necessary. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree, Raul. Uh, we do have to we do have to appease the nihilists, as as you mentioned, and and certainly um, gathering this kind of data in a randomized clinical trial is is really the best way to do that. So. Just to conclude, I, I want to applaud you for, again, looking at this patient population, again, at the margins of uh, what we are currently treating, and certainly um, a group of patients that could potentially profoundly benefit from mechanical thrombolysis. Uh, and congratulations on this study, and, and please continue to, to do the good work that you guys are doing to further elucidate uh, the answers to this vitally important question. Once again, Philippe, thank you for the opportunity to, to discuss uh, our work. Uh, Thanks again, Dr. Noguera, for your interesting commentary regarding your article, again, entitled Too Good to Intervene, Thrombectomy for Large Vessel Stroke with Minimal Symptoms, an Intention to Treat Analysis, published in the October print journal of neurointerventional surgery and currently available online. I should say that a follow-up article that Dr. Noguera's group has published uh, is also online on the JNIS website and is entitled Thrombectomy versus Medical Management for Large Vessel Strokes with Minimal Symptoms, an Analysis from Stop Stroke and Guest Door Cohorts.